0: Please turn in your Bibles tonight to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. <clears throat> Hebrews, chapter 4. And I'll read verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We continue our study tonight in the heart of Jesus as he has now been exalted into heaven, his heart for us, his disciples who are still here below in this world of sin and so much trouble. And here in these verses we have a most astonishing revelation of the heart of Christ to us, a more astonishing revelation than anywhere else it seems in the scripture. In verse 14, we have the supremacy of Christ. But then in verse 15, we have this sympathy of Christ, our great high priest, even after he has passed through the heavens and is at the right hand of God, he is one who has great sympathy for us. Jesus was the name given to him as a man in verse 14, and if we look over to chapter 5 and verse 1, we read, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. So every high priest, he had to be one who was taken from among men if he was to represent them. And so it was with Jesus he had to be a man to represent us as our high priest in the presence of God in heaven. He is Jesus in verse 14. He is Jesus, his human name. He is the son of God, his divine title from eternity. And so he is both God and man. He is man who represents us and man who could offer himself a sacrifice for us on the cross and he is God to give infinite value to everything that he has done. And the apostle tells us in verse 14 that he belongs to us. We have a great high priest who has now passed into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. And after the writer has spoken of Jesus in verse 14, as so exalted a high priest... As one who has passed through the heavens into the throne of God, the question immediately arises, how can one who is so high and exalted have any concern for us? We who are so weak and frail and who live in under so many temptations and in such a sinning condition here below. He seems so remote and so distant from us. Far above the realities of our human existence, is it even possible for him to have any compassion, any kindness, or any consideration for us? And the writer to the book of Hebrews immediately answers that question in verse 15, where he says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. A revelation from above of his soul, his inner thoughts, his attitude, his sympathizing heart for us now, even that he is in glory, he still yearns for us and has compassion and sympathy for us. This is our verse for this evening in verse 15. The purpose of the writer here is to encourage us as believers against all of our discouragements and all of our trials, all of our sufferings, disappointments, all of our temptations and failures that we experience in this present world. There are two commands in these verses. The first is in verse 14 at the end of the verse that we are to hold fast our confession. The second command is in verse 16 where we are to draw near to our great high priest in heaven at the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How are we to hold fast our confession? By drawing near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. But if we are to trust in Jesus as our great high priest, And if we are to be willing to go to him for all of our needs, then two things we must see in him. We must see his love and kindness for us. And we must also see his greatness and power that he has. The writer has already shown the greatness and the power of Jesus in verse 14, where he is the son of God who has passed through the heavens. And now in verse 15, he shows us the love and the kindness which he has for us in his sympathy. He begins verse 14 with a double negative. He says, for we do not have one who cannot. We do not have one who cannot. The double negative is used to strongly affirm the positive. Meaning we most certainly do have a high priest who can sympathize with. With our weaknesses. He is one who has the ability. And he has the capacity. He is fully able to sympathize with us. We are his great interest. We are his concern. As he is on his throne of glory above. So that whatever trial or temptation may come upon us, whatever sin that we may fall into, he looks down from heaven with the most intense concern, with great compassion and care for us. There is no affliction that can ever come upon us, which he does not know. There is no sorrow that we will ever encounter that he does not have great care and sympathy for us. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens to the throne of God and there he always sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. It can never be that we will pass through troubles in this life or any affliction here below that he remains aloof from or detached from us. It can never be that he would have no interest in us No concern for us in our struggles. We are the center of his interest and the focus of all of his great concerns. To sympathize means to have pity and compassion on another in their time of trouble. To sympathize means to be affected with the sense of another's need. It means to be touched with the feeling, touched inwardly with the feeling of distress for another. This is the way some of the English Bibles translate it, to be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Sympathy is based upon a relationship between people. So that whatever affects one affects the other. When one falls into some trouble or sorrow, the other understands and enters in to his feelings with him. Sympathy is mutual understanding. It is the sharing of distress and sorrows and the griefs and troubles of life. We can use the word commiserate, which is really a synonym and means the same thing, to feel sorrow or pity for another who is in a wretched and... Miserable condition. We could also speak of empathy, which means that the relationship is so intimate between two people that whatever one goes through, the other immediately feels and comprehends it all. So we have these three words, sympathy and commiserate and empathy. And whatever differences they may be between them. All of these things are included in this one word sympathy in regard to our Lord Jesus Christ. He is a high priest who has this great sympathy for us. Sympathy is based on relationship between people. The degree of sympathy is based on the depth of relationship We may hear of someone that we have never met, very far away, who has gone through a tragedy, experienced some great loss, and we may have sympathy for them because we share humanity with them. We have a relationship with them in that way. But our our sympathy for them is shallow and passing at best. But the closer the relationship, the deeper The sympathy one feels for the suffering of another. The greater the love, the greater the sympathy. And the deepest love must produce the deepest possible sympathy. And this is what the writer is telling us here, that we have this relationship of the deepest possible love from the heart of Christ to us as our great high priest. And out of this flows the deepest possible sympathy for us. Jesus' relationship with us here is based on three things, incarnation, suffering, and death. We see these back in chapter 2. If we turn back there for a moment, chapter 2 and verse 16 and 17. Verse 16, he says, For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So here we see his incarnation in verse 17. At the end of verse, in verse 16, he says that he does not give help to angels. Angels do not need such help. The angels are in heaven, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham, to us who are here below, who are of the faith. We are in this world, and we are the ones who need his divine help. How could God ever know how to help? Men and women who are here upon the earth, the only true answer is by a true incarnation in verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. In all things, meaning in every part of our humanity, not just in likeness to our physical bodies, But in all things, including our souls as well, so that he could know inwardly as a man the distresses, the hardships, the troubles that we experience in our human condition in this world of sin. In the incarnation, the Son of God made a complete identification with us as men. He became like us in all things pertaining to our humanity. And then he says that he might become a high priest. In other words, his incarnation was necessary for him to become our high priest. His incarnation was what qualified him to be our high priest. And without it, he could have never been taken from among men, been our representative and than our high priest. But incarnation by itself could have never made him a merciful and faithful high priest. Incarnation had to be followed by a life of suffering. And that brings us to the second identification of Christ with us, a life of suffering and temptation. It was not just enough for him to be made like us in all things. He had to live in this world in our humanity with all of our human weaknesses and frailties and yet without any sin. And this is what he did if we look back to verse 10. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory for him to perfect the author of our their salvation through sufferings this is what god the father did this is the plan of god the father to perfect jesus as the author author of our suffering of our salvation to make him a perfect and complete savior for us through a life of sufferings that he might bring many sons to glory to perfect the author of our salvation through a life of sufferings. So the entire life of Jesus was a life of suffering. Born in poverty, in humiliation, in his birth. Born into an obscure, unknown virgin laid in a manger, in a trough his life in grave danger from the beginning as Herod sent out his soldiers to put him to death. His entire life, his entire ministry was of continual hardship, weary days of labor, tempted by the devil, long nights of prayer, continual conflicts with his enemies, disappointment with his disciples, sorrows from the sins of this world as Isaiah said that he was despised and he was forsaken of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and like one from whom men hide their face he was despised and we did not esteem him we see his life of suffering again down at the end of the chapter in verse 18 for since he himself was tempted In that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He himself, he was tempted. He was put to the test to see his level of obedience to his heavenly father. He was tempted in everything that he suffered. And this was the genuineness of his humanity And the proof of his likeness to us that his incarnation was not merely an appearance of being like us. But his incarnation was a complete identification with us. In all of our struggles, conflicts, temptations, sufferings that we experience in this world. A true and intimate companionship with us in a life of temptation and suffering. And we see at the end of verse 18 that the effect of his life and suffering is present and permanent with him forever because he is able, and he begins now to point us to verse 15 in chapter 4 that we are looking at tonight. He is able from his lone life of suffering to have compassion on us and come to our aid and help us when we ourselves are tempted. He is able to come to the aid Of those who are tempted. So his incarnation brought him into a life of suffering. But his suffering had to end in death upon the cross. Incarnation, suffering, and then death. And this is what he speaks of at the end of verse 17. He had to be made a propitiation for the sins of the people. This was the whole purpose of his incarnation. His great work as high priest. This is how he became our high priest by offering himself a propitiation to appease the wrath of God upon the cross. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And our God is a consuming fire. And that's what happened to Jesus in his death upon the cross. He fell into the hands of the living God. And he was under the consuming fires of God's wrath upon that cross. And he appeased and he propitiated the wrath of God and took away all of our sins. He became our great high priest in his death upon the cross. So in these three things, Jesus has come into this world. And by these three things, now he is able to sympathize with us. In all of our temptations, in all of our Struggles and trials in this life, incarnation and suffering and death. And that's what we find as we look back to chapter 4 and verse 15. That we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Before the Incarnation, as God, He knew our temptations and our sufferings. But He knew them only at a distance. He knew them by divine omniscience. He knew them only from above. But by the Incarnation, He came to know our temptations. And He came to know all our sufferings by his own human experience, in all of our human weakness, yet without any sin, he came to know our temptations and our sufferings here below. Before the incarnation, he was on his throne of glory. He looked down upon the sufferings and temptations of mankind And he knew them all by a divine omniscience. But it is as if he said, this knowledge of divine omniscience, it is not sufficient. It is not enough for me to become a merciful and faithful high priest. I must come down in an incarnation and I must be like my brethren in all things. And I must live through a life of suffering and temptation. And then I must go to the cross. And take all their sins upon them. And free them from the penalty. Of all their sins that are against them. His knowledge of omniscience, had to be replaced by his knowledge of human experience. We may say it this way, before the coming of Christ, he knew our sufferings from the outside. But by the incarnation and his life on earth, now he knows our sufferings from the inside And so that's why the Apostle tells us here, the writer tells us, we do not have a high priest. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He was tempted. He was tempted in all things as we are in the very same way and with the very same kinds of temptations that we are tempted with in this world and yet without any sin every kind of trial every kind of affliction that we experience he passed through was he tempted to sin yes he was tempted to sin by the evil one was he lonely yes he was lonely as his disciples abandoned him and even his heavenly father on the cross? Did he weep and have great sorrow, yes, at the tomb of his friend whom he loved, Lazarus? Was he disappointed in others? Yes, by his disciples often. And does he know what it is to experience death? Yes, by his own death. Upon the cross. So, in all things, in all the various ways of temptation that we experience, he has been tempted in all those ways as we are, yet always without any sin. Temptation in itself is not sin. Temptation is a testing, it is a proving. To resist and overcome temptation is victory, but to yield. And to capitulate under the pressure of temptation, that is sin. But Jesus overcame every temptation. And Jesus never gave way to sin. In every assault against him, in every attack of the evil one, in every allurement of this world, under every pressure that sin could put upon him, He never sinned. He was always without any sin. Holy, innocent, and undefiled, apart, separated from all sin, he became our great high priest. Some have thought that because Jesus did not fall into sin, he must not have experienced the full strength of temptation as we who fall into sin. But the very opposite is really true because in his overcoming temptation, he faced the full power of temptation. When temptation comes against us, as its strength begins to increase, we give way very quickly and we fall at a very low point. But when temptation came against Jesus, as its strength increased, he resisted. And as its strength built more and more, he still resisted. And as its power rose, he continued in the great resistance against sin until it came. The powers of sin, temptation rose to its highest point of intensity Jesus continued to stand strong against it. And so he knew the full force of temptation as we never well will. And yet he never sinned. And his experience of it has made him all the more able to sympathize with us in our need. If he had sinned, it would have disqualified him from being our high priest. He could have never offered a sinless and holy sacrifice in the presence of God to take away our sin. We are the ones who are defeated by temptation. We need one who has conquered temptation and all of its power. And this is who we have in Jesus, one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. We said before that sympathy comes from relationship. The deeper the love, the deeper the sympathy. What greater love could there ever be than for the Son of God to become incarnate to come down from his glorious throne in heaven and to be made like his brethren in all things, what greater love could there be than for him to suffer in all the temptations, trials, and afflictions of this present life so that he might know by his own experience what we pass through? And what greater love could there be than for him to go to the cross And take the penalty of all of our sins from us. And become our great high priest. John says we know love by this. That he laid down his life for us. This is how we know what love is. That he laid down his life for us. Jesus said greater love than this. Greater love has no one than this. Than that one lay down his life for his friends. No greater love could there ever be than the love of Jesus in his life and death upon the cross. And so no greater sympathy could there ever be than the sympathy of our high priest for us. Paul says Christ loved you, gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And John says in John 13 and verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Having loved us and taken our greatest burden, which was our sin upon himself at the cross, do we not think that he will continue to love us now and take upon himself all of the burdens of this present life that we bear and sympathize for us, with us as our great high priest? We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us but he is one who has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet without any sin. A perfect high priest with sympathy, kindness, compassion, with power and grace to help us in all of our needs. But Jesus, it says in verse 15, that he sympathizes with our weaknesses, What are these weaknesses that he speaks of? And what are included under these weaknesses? Sometimes they are called infirmities. He was touched with the feeling of our infirmities, our weaknesses. It is a very broad word, this word weakness in the Bible. And we can break it into two large categories here. The first is all of the afflictions, the trials, the troubles, persecutions that come upon us. In this life, the word is used to speak of whatever inadequacy we may have, whatever inability we may have to perform a task and to do the will of God. Whatever would hold us back and prevent us and disable us from doing what we ought to do, it is a weakness, but it includes physical sickness and disease and whatever affliction or ailment may come upon one we see the word used a number of times in one passage which could help us if we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 in 2 Corinthians and chapter 12 <clears throat> Paul received revelations of Christ and then we read in verse 7 of what happened afterwards. And he says in chapter 12, verse 7, he says, and because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. So Paul received this thorn in the flesh. It was a physical affliction which brought him under trial and it exposed his weaknesses and his inadequacies we read in verses 8 and the beginning of verse 9 he says concerning this i entreated the lord 3 times that it might depart from me and he has said to me my grace is sufficient for you for power my power is perfected in weakness <clears throat> there's our word weakness The thorn in the flesh had brought him into this state of weakness in which he was utterly dependent upon the strength and power of Christ. Then he says, the end of verse 9, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses. The same word again, my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses. The same word again with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, the same word, then I am strong. So the weaknesses are those inabilities, those incapacities, and associated with the insults, distresses, persecutions, and difficulties that we experience in this life. Back in Hebrews chapter 4. In Hebrews chapter 4, the weaknesses mentioned in verse 15 must be associated with the exhortation in verse 14 that we hold fast our confession. We are to hold fast our confession. And so whatever trouble, whatever difficulty, persecution, discouragement may come upon us, whatever weighs us down, is one of these weaknesses, whatever burdens us and whatever has the tendency that we would turn back from our confession of Christ and would, whatever would pull us from our confession, this is the weakness that he speaks of, the weaknesses of verse 15. But in the second place, this word weaknesses can also include our sin and it must include our sin in this context for three reasons. First, from the encouragement given by the example of Christ himself at the end of verse 15, that he was one who was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. His temptations were temptations to sin the same as ours, and yet he never sinned. We we fail, we fall into sin. He never failed. He was always victorious over his temptations. But our weaknesses, our weaknesses in the beginning of verse 15 can only correspond to Christ and his temptations without sin in the second half of the verse if our weaknesses include also our sins. The second way in which we see that this weaknesses include our sins is in the remedy that is given for our weaknesses, which is found in verse, 15, in verse 16. Two things are promised to us at the throne of grace in verse 16: mercy and grace to help in time of need. Both of them are the remedies to our weaknesses in verse 15. And mercy is God's pity. It is forgiveness in regard to the guilt of our sin. And grace is strength to help us against the power of sin. So the remedies of verse 16 show us that the weaknesses in verse 15 must include our sin. And then third, from the Old Testament priest mentioned in chapter 5 and verses 2 and 3, where we read of the high priest that he can deal gently. Verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided and those who fall into sin, since he himself is also beset with weakness. And because he is obligated, because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sin as for the people, so also for himself. So the priests of the old covenant, they were only types of Christ who was to come, and yet one of their qualifications was that they, were, they had to be able to have pity and deal gently with those who were ignorant and misguided and led into sin. And if the types of Christ had to have sympathy in regard to sins committed, then how much more Christ himself, who is the fulfillment and the antitype. And so the sympathy of Christ for our weaknesses is a sympathy of Jesus even in regard to the weakness connected to and leading to our sin. So the weaknesses here include all of our trials, afflictions, troubles that come upon us. The weaknesses here are all the distresses, the sorrows, the troubles, disappointments, fears of our souls. Whatever discourages us along the way, whatever weighs us down and burdens us, including our sin, which discourages us most of all. Jesus sympathizes with us in the weakness, in the weaknesses which lead to our sins. which includes our sins. But Jesus sympathizing with the weaknesses that include our sin does not mean in any way that he thinks lightly of sin. For in this very same letter, we find the writer giving strong warnings against sin, Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13, he says, Take care, brethren, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Chapter 12 and verse 14, he says, Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So when we speak of sin as part of our weaknesses with with which he sympathizes with us, These warnings are in the background and we assume that all of those whom he speaks of here, that he sympathizes with our weaknesses, all of them are those who are fully engaged in the spiritual conflict of the war that they are in against sin. And yet we know our weaknesses and we know how faltering, how weak, how helpless even we are in the face of the conflict in ourselves. Jesus said, Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's weakness. Paul said to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 5, he said, we have no sufficiency. We have no sufficiency in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. That's weakness. Paul said to the Romans chapter 7, I know I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. That's weakness. We notice the word here is in the plural. Weaknesses, it could have been in the singular. With our weakness, it's in the plural. We are men and women with many various manifold different kinds of weakness. Even at our best moments, we are weak. Our obedience is weak, wavering how easily we fall from it. We have weaknesses, and we need help in everything that we do in the Christian life. We have weakness in our marriages. We have weakness in our parenting Weakness in our relationships with others. Weakness in our minds and attitudes. We have weakness in our love to God and weakness in our love to one another. We are weak in all the fruit of the Holy Spirit. How quickly we grumble and complain when our wills are crossed. And it is often a grumbling and complaining against the providence of God. How weak and how quickly we fall into fear and anxiety when any trouble comes upon us. And whatever trust we thought we had in God, how easily it evaporates from our hearts under great distress. We are weak when we face our trials. We are weak under the disciplining hand of the Lord in Hebrews chapter 12, where the Writer says that we either despise his discipline or we faint and lose heart under it. How easily we become bitter when our trials endure for any length of time. We all know our besetting sins, each one of us, we have our own. And how weak we are, how weak we are before them, how easily we fall when temptation comes, how weak we are in perseverance, Weak in our faithfulness to Christ, weak in our witness to the world. How weak we are in our faith, doubts often arising in our hearts. A Christian can sometimes even doubt whether the Bible is true. And if he does not doubt whether the Bible is true in general, he can doubt whether it is true in regard to himself. We are weak in prayer. We are weak to live by the promises of God. Weak to trust him in all of his word. We are weak in worship. We are weak in preaching. Weak in hearing the word. We are weak in our thankfulness. We are weak in our praise to God. We could go on and on and continue to speak of all the weaknesses that we do have. We are weak in our emotions. How fickle, how changeable our emotions are. We are weak in our wills to do what is right. Paul said to the Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2, he said, set your minds, set your mind on things above and not on things on earth. But how weak we are to do so. Set your mind. Seek to set your mind upon the things above. How long? How long can you keep your mind upon the things above? A few seconds? A few seconds at best? And how quickly the mind sinks down once again into the things of this world. And if our minds are so weak, then how weak is everything else about us? Are we strong in anything in the Christian life? Is there a single duty of the gospel that you can think of tonight that you can say, I am strong in that duty of the Christian life? Sin has so ruined us that we are the epitome of weakness in the things of God and even under grace we are still covered with our weaknesses and our weaknesses are associated with our sins and our weaknesses result in so many sins and in so many transgressions of the word which is the sense of the word in this context but how does our Lord Jesus Christ deal with all of our weaknesses? Does he scold us and rebuke us? Does he look down from heaven with a stern frown of disapproval? Does he quickly become angry and scorn us? Does he enter into judgment with us? Does he reward us as our sins deserve? No, no, says the Apostle. This is what he does. He sympathizes with us. He feels compassion. He enters into our struggle. And he feels our infirmities himself. In heaven, at the right hand of God, it is true, he is very exalted. He has passed through the heavens. We might think, well, perhaps he has nothing to do with us who are so weak, especially in so many temptations and sins. We might say, well, perhaps he is so great upon his throne above that he no longer wishes to have any dealings with us. He has ascended. He has ascended into heaven. Perhaps he has left behind the frailties of our human nature. And now his humanity is so glorified that he can have no pity upon us. But no, no, says the writer. This is the very objection that he removes. Our great high priest in heaven, he has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without any sin. And he remembers, he remembers the experience of all of his trials. And by his own experience of suffering and sorrow and grief and trouble in this world, he can sympathize with us in all of our weaknesses, in all of our frailties. And he is always touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He has passed through the heavens, and yet he is still moved with compassion over all of our trials. He has tender affection For all of our weaknesses, he enters in, in all of our griefs and sorrows that we bear below. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. We have one who can and fully is able to sympathize with us in all of our weaknesses. And one who has been tempted in all things yet without sin. He is the sovereign over all of our trials, yes. He disciplines us for our holiness, as he says in Hebrews chapter 12. But he never afflicts us willingly. And he never disciplines us beyond measure. But only for what is needful and for our good. And in every trial which must come, he always sympathizes with us. And is ready to give us grace to help in time of need. And it is this sympathy and compassion that he feels toward us. It is the sympathizing high priest that should draw us near to him in verse 16. It is because he is so sympathizing with us in all of our weaknesses. And it is because he has passed through all of these trials himself in his own life. It is that view of him that should cause us to draw near to him in all of our troubles and cast all of our cares upon him in verse 16. We may have confidence in him because he knows all things. He is Jesus who has suffered. He is the son of God who has power. He is able to give us mercy and grace to help in every time of need. A father would never turn his child away who comes to him in weakness. Jesus will never turn us away when we come to him with our weaknesses. Do we struggle with sins? Are there sins in our lives that we have not overcome? Let us go to the throne of grace and receive mercy, fresh mercy and grace and power to help in every time of need verse 16 as our only hope in our weaknesses in these verses we have only two things we have only two things in this in these verses we have weaknesses and we have a great high priest jesus the son of god and he promises that if we come to him in prayer at his throne of grace in heaven his sympathy will now be accompanied by mercy to cover all of our sins, and he promises that his sympathy will now be grace with power for us to endure our trials and overcome our sins. With us there is weakness, with him there is mercy and all grace. Let us therefore draw near to the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. After speaking of our weaknesses in verse 15, what does he say in verse 16? Draw near. There we have our weakness. And then he says, draw near to the throne of grace, that you may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Verse 16 has everything to do with the Lord's Supper, which we are about to celebrate. Because just as we are invited to the throne of grace in heaven, so we are also invited to the Lord's Supper. When we come to the throne of grace in heaven, we do not look to ourselves or anything from ourselves. We must come looking in faith to Jesus and to him alone and everything that he has for us. And so we come to the Lord's Supper in the same way. We are not here looking to ourselves. We are looking to Jesus and to his blood upon the cross, which can cleanse us of all of our sins. When the apostle tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28, when he says, but let a man examine himself, so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup, he does not mean that we are to examine ourselves and to make sure that we have all strength within us. He does not mean that we are to examine ourselves and make sure that we are drawing near to some state of sinless perfection. He means examine yourselves and make sure that you are dealing with the Lord's Supper with a proper reverence in the manner, in the way in which you are partaking of it. And he means examine yourself in regard to your weakness and to your utter dependence and look to Jesus alone. In faith, the Lord's Supper is like the throne of grace itself. We may receive mercy, fresh mercy, and it is a means to strengthen us in grace. It is not that we may come to one only and not the other, and we may come to both tonight as we partake of the Lord's Supper we may also by faith come to the throne of grace in heaven and by faith receive all that Jesus has for us. Let us who are so weak and sinful, let us draw near with confidence, not in ourselves, but in our great high priest. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray together. Father and gracious God in heaven, O Lord, help us to see the great high priest that you have given to us. Give us eyes of faith that we might truly believe all that you have to say about him, that he does in heaven sympathize with us in all of our weaknesses And he is able to have mercy upon us and give us grace to help in every time of need. Lord Jesus, come and make yourself known to us. Now as we partake of the elements of this supper tonight, may we do so with reverence, with love, and with great delight in you and all that you have done. Thank you that you have freely given yourself to us as our Savior. Help us now. And bless the Lord's Supper to us in Jesus' name. Amen.